Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to call to order this hearing of the subcommittee of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, our hearing this afternoon is titled American Energy Exports, Opportunities for U.S. Allies and U.S. National Security. Uh, during my time in the Senate, I have focused on improving energy security uh, of our nation as well as our allies across the world. The United States recently became the world's largest oil and natural gas producer. As a result, the United States has a rare opportunity to simultaneously support our allies, reduce our trade deficit, and create much-needed jobs here at home. It can all be done through American energy exports. U.S. exports of our natural gas, our oil, and our coal provide opportunities to advance our foreign policy objectives and strengthen our national security. Our nation can help countries diversify their energy imports away from countries like Iran, Russia, and Venezuela. The administration and Congress need to focus, our energy, focus on energy and take the steps required to eliminate barriers for exports of American natural gas, oil, and coal. One good example of how the United States can assist our allies and partners through U.S. energy resources is the current situation in Europe. Many of our European allies import more than 80 percent of their natural gas from Russia, with some importing as much as 100 percent. While in the past, Russia controlled the nations of Eastern Europe through military force, Russia now seeks to control them economically. Russia is able to use its energy resources to manipulate and threaten countries in Eastern Europe because of their dependency on Russia's natural gas. Countries are asking America to increase exports in order to help reduce the threat Russia proposes to Europe by offering an alternative source of natural gas. Every molecule of American natural gas that makes it into the world's market is going to be a molecule that cannot be used by Russia to hold countries in Europe hostage. In July 2014, uh, Ukrainian President Poroshenko wrote an article in the Washington Post asking for the United States to help Ukraine and respond to Russia. He said, quote, we need U.S. natural gas to shore up our energy supplies so that we cannot be blackmailed by Moscow. We need a reliable partner and ally to help fuel our nation. Four of our allies in Europe, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic, have asked the U.S. to increase exports to help blunt Moscow's influence. These countries know what Russia aggression looks like, and they are asking for our help. It's time for the United States to take the needed steps to help expedite U.S. natural resources. The geopolitical benefits of U.S. energy exports are not limited to Europe. Whether we talk about the United States being an alternative to Iran's crude oil exports for countries like China, India, Japan, or South Korea, which would help cut off a vital supply of funding to the Iranian regime, or the United States supplying natural gas to help boost economic development for countries in the Western Hemisphere dealing with the uncertainty of Venezuela's energy exports and subsidies, or the United States strengthening engagement and trade with East Asian nations U.S. energy exports can provide important national security benefits and strengthen America's foreign policy leadership across the globe. Over the last several years, I've introduced legislative initiatives aimed at making it easier to export American natural gas to our allies overseas. Earlier this year, I introduced S-33, the LNG Permitting Certainty and Transparency Act. This bipartisan bill expedites the permitting process for LNG exports by requiring the Secretary of Energy to make a final decision on an export application within 45 days after the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission completes the environmental review process. 
I'm also co-sponsor of S1312, introduced by Senator Murkowski, to repeal the ban on exports of domestic crude oil. Through these efforts and many others, I continue to work to remove barriers and increase exports of American natural gas, oil, and coal. I will now turn to the ranking uh, member, Senator Udall, so he can offer his opening remarks. Thank you uh, very much, Chairman Barrasso, and thank you for scheduling uh, this hearing. I'd like to add a few thoughts about the importance of this hearing. This is a very timely topic and one where I think members with varying views will benefit from our panel today. Making a decision about increasing exports of liquefied natural gas and crude is not as simple as it sounds. Ten years ago, Congress was holding hearings about the need for the U.S. to import natural gas, and our oil dependence seemed hopeless. Now we face an abundance of natural gas and growing domestic oil production, both nationwide and in my home state of New Mexico. Energy exports could lead to more jobs and revenue for states like New Mexico and Wyoming. For natural gas, we are now projected to have enough supplies to meet domestic needs for a century. And there is a great demand for LNG from our allies such as Japan and Europe. If we are going to break the Russian stranglehold on energy in Eastern Europe, then we should seriously consider taking the steps to export LNG. I do not claim it is a quick and easy solution, but I do believe it's a valuable tool. For these reasons, I'm pleased to join our subcommittee chairman on this legislation to improve the DOE permit process for LNG exports. To avoid unnecessary delays for LNG export applications at facilities that have already received environmental approvals. But the resources we, we have, um, the resources we may export are also important for the United States and our ability to grow our economy and maintain our energy security. Keeping prices stable enables middle class Americans to not only fill the tank and balance their budgets, <coughs> but enables American manufacturing and ensures that our military can respond anywhere in the world to protect our national interests. With ongoing turmoil and war <coughs> in the Middle East going back many decades, we must understand that there is a direct link between our energy policy and our national security. Before we make changes, especially with regards to crude oil, we should understand how proposed changes may impact our national security interests. Today, the United States Armed Forces, in particular the Navy, are always on patrol to prevent disruptions in our global energy supply chain. We must be cognizant that our service members are in harm's way overseas as we make decisions whether to permit the export of crude oil. Today, the United States can already export refined oil products such as gasoline, diesel, and other oil products. However, because of increased crude production in the U.S. and a refining capacity that is not currently designed to support all the types of domestic crude entering the market, there is an economic question of whether this crude should be allowed to be exported. I believe there are strong arguments on each side regarding the question of crude exports, and I hope to learn more throughout the hearing. Some of the questions I hope might be addressed include how this decision will Im impact U.S. national security. Who has the refining capacity for our crude exports? How will this decision impact states and communities who extract oil? Are our refineries beginning the process of investing in infrastructure to refine more of this crude oil here in the United States? In addition, I think we also need to take a hard look at how our energy policies interact with our environmental policies 
and impact our ability to limit global climate change. Climate change is real and it is already beginning to have national security implications across the globe. In fact, there has been a fact that has been confirmed by the Pentagon and stressed in numerous policy studies, including the Quadrennial Defense Review. Climate impacts the countries and people who have the least resources, threatening the very fabric of society in many developing countries. So we should also consider whether policies to encourage or allow U.S. LNG or crude exports are likely to improve or worsen global emissions. LNG is likely to, to displace coal or oil use for power generation when exported, but the question on crude is more uncertain. With that, Chairman, uh, Chairman Barrasso, I'm eager to hear from all our witnesses today. That they are an expert and distinguished panel. I'd like to thank Commander Lippold for being able to join us on relatively short notice, and I'm looking forward to a good hearing. Thank you very much, Senator Udall. The, um, at this point, I'd like to welcome all of our witnesses. I know you have very busy schedules. I appreciate all of you being with us today to share your thoughts on American energy exports. Uh, joining us uh, this afternoon on this panel is uh, Robert McNally, the president of uh, the Rapidon Group, Mr. David Gordon, senior advisor of the Eurasia Group and adjunct senior fellow for the Center for a New American Security, uh, Mr. Jamie Webster, the uh, senior director of IHS Energy, and uh, Commander uh, Lippold, President of Lippold Strategy. So I want to thank you again for making time to share your thoughts and your insights. Your full statement will be entered into the record without objection, uh, and I would ask you to summarize it, if you could, in five minutes in order for the members to have an opportunity uh, to ask questions. Uh, Mr. McNally, uh, we would like to start with you. Chairman Barrasso, Ranking Member Udall, members of the committee, my name is Robert McNally, and I head the Rapidan Group, an independent energy consulting firm based in Bethesda, Maryland. It is an honor to share my personal views with you today about the role of U.S. energy exports in strengthening our foreign policy and national security. As a former practitioner of energy security policy while on the White House National Security Council, and with nearly two and a half decades analyzing energy markets and policy, may I express my appreciation to you and your colleagues in Congress of both parties for your work in recent years on energy exports. Exports like the gas boom itself appeared to come quickly and out of nowhere. Congress has showed leadership and alacrity in ensuring the boom serves our foreign policy objectives. We have some good history here. We were as much an arsenal of energy as an arsenal of democracy during World War II, supplying six out of the seven billion barrels used by the Allies to prevail in that conflict. And even after our net crude oil imports started rising after the 1950s, we made extra supplies available to Allies when Middle East conflicts in 1956 and 67 triggered disruptions. Everything changed for the worse in the 1970s when we lost control of the global oil market and reeled from soaring imports and prices. For the next 40 years, our energy and national security policy stemmed largely from fears of major supply interruptions to ourselves and our allies. But thanks to American ingenuity, sweat, and risk-taking, those days are over. Twelve years ago, we all thought LNG imports would be soaring like crude oil. But after the shale gas revolution raised proved reserves by 77%, we are now on track to become a net gas exporter by 2017. Meanwhile, crude oil production in the United States rose from 5 million barrels a day in 2006 to 9.4 million barrels a day in the first quarter of this year. Our import dependence is down from 60 to 24%. We are the world's largest liquids producer. The economic benefits of our, for our consumers, businesses, and public sector um, are well uh, analyzed and extolled by a broad spectrum of officials, experts, think tanks, and leading journals. Your subject today, Mr. Chairman, and the focus of my remarks concerns national security. 
The shale gas boom directly helped our U European allies by giving them bargaining leverage with their main supplier, Russia. We first helped by backing out imports of LNG that we no longer needed, making them available for Europe. Then with congressional encouragement, the Department of Energy streamlined and accelerated the process of approving LNG facilities for non-FTA countries like our strong ally, Japan. As a result, without having yet exported one molecule of LNG, our allies in Europe and Japan have already enjoyed much greater bargaining power when they face Russia. Just having the option to buy US gas strengthens the bargaining power of our allies when they negotiate. For example, last December, Lithuania brought on a new terminal, a LNG import terminal, the Independence. Gazprom had to lower its prices by 20%. Turning to oil, current policy allows the unrestricted export of refined products like gasoline, diesel, and liquid petroleum gas, but restricts crude oil exports to Canada and a few other limited circumstances. Amidst the panic 40 years ago, policymakers had imposed price controls and complemented them with an energy, with a ban on crude oil and refined products. We didn't want our controlled crude and products running away abroad to escape the price controls. But the price controls were lifted in 1981. Someone forgot to raise to lift the crude oil ban. No one paid attention because until recently we had no reason to export crude. Today, the crude oil ban is not just an anachronism, it is a threat to the boom itself due to a mismatch between the quality of crudes we produce and refine. It discriminates against U.S. oil producers, thereby con threatening continued investment and production. In recent months, the industry has laid down rigs, let go workers, and cut investment spending in response to the collapse in global crude oil prices. The global oil market is not for the timid, and producers must roll with the punches. But the last thing our producers need or deserve is regulatory discrimination that, if it had any valid purpose 40 years ago, no longer does today. Many st studies and experts concluded consumers would benefit from lifting the crude oil ban. With regard to foreign policy, I would name a few of the benefits we would expect to derive. One, preserve and protect supply diversity. The oil market is global. A supply disruption anywhere transmits a price shock everywhere, including here. Unfortunately, two-thirds of the global proven reserves lie in the Middle East. 40% of oil flows through the Strait of Hormuz. Traded oil flows through the Strait of Hormuz. The more we can get from outside, the better. Second. Reduce oil price volatility and thereby protect economic stability at home and abroad. Third, practice what we preach on free trade. We are the only advanced country that bans crude oil exports. The ban contradicts our attempt to promote free trade and open markets, especially in energy and strategic commodities that are produced and sourced globally. Fourth, finally, help achieve national security priorities, especially regarding Iran's nuclear ambitions. Without our oil boom, disruptions in recent years would have caused oil prices to skyrocket, making sanctions against Iran's crude oil exports difficult, if not impossible. Looking ahead, if a deal is struck, Tehran would resume export of oils while our, while our producers remained shackled. As Senator Murkowski said in April, quote, we should not lift sanctions on Iranian oil while keeping sanctions on American oil. It makes no sense, end quote. If nuclear talks fail or Iran cheats, we may ask for continued or further import cuts from our allies in Europe and Asia, whose refineries are well suited to our oil. It would be neither fair nor responsible to do so without offering them access to our supply. In conclusion, Mr. Chairman, Congress and the administration have worked successfully so far to leverage our natural gas boom to aid our allies and promote US foreign policy. I urge you to continue to complete the job with regard to crude oil so that the blessings of our energy boom can extend from our consumers and economy to our allies and foreign policy interests around the globe. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Mr. McNally. Uh, Mr. Gordon.
uh, I want to thank you uh, and Senator Udall and members of the committee for the opportunity to testify before you today on how increased energy exports can advance U.S. foreign policy goals, assist our most important allies, and strengthen U.S. national security. I commend your initiative in holding this hearing on a very important opportunity that the United States has to enhance a new tool in our foreign policy arsenal. In a domestic market awash with oil and gas, keeping export restrictions in place discriminates against U.S. producers and threatens investment in new supply, thereby jeopardizing economic security and trade gains from the energy boom. Policymakers should streamline and speed up the process of licensing natural gas export projects and begin to lift the oil export ban to bring export policy in line with present market circumstances. The restrictions on U.S. energy exports were the outcome of a bipartisan efforts and have been sustained over many decades by both Democratic and Republican administrations. It's not surprising, therefore, that calls for modernizing our export policies have also been bipartisan. P President Obama's chief of energy uh, diplomacy in the State Department, Car Carlos P Pascual, who's recently left government, is now a leading proponent of lifting the restrictions on U.S. energy exports. Last month, writing in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Obama's former CIA director and Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta and President Bush's National Security Advisor Steve Hadley highlighted that while the U.S. has broken free of its dependence on energy from unstable sources, our friends and allies, quote, do not enjoy the same degree of independence. The moment has come, they write, for the U.S. to deploy its oil and gas in support of its security interests around the world. I want to spend the time allotted to me to explain how enhanced energy exports would support U.S. foreign policy goals in regards to Russia, East Asia, and Iran. A, a fundamental pillar in the current U.S. policy toward Russia is to degrade their ability to compete in the global energy markets. Liberalizing U.S. exports will constitute an important strategic act uh, of support for our allies in Europe who are more threatened by Russian regional destabilization and have paid a much bigger economic cost by imposing sanctions on Russia than has the United States. Such a move would materially enhance the prospects for sustaining the transatlantic stance in support of continuing sanctions against Russia. Is this going to change Russia's behavior quickly? No. Can it have an important impact over the long time? Absolutely. For East Asian consumer countries, more U.S. supply in the market would give them new opportunities to diversify away from increasingly unstable Gulf and Russian oil and gas supplies. This will be true for all East Asian nations, including both our treaty allies in Northeast Asia and China. Energy security is one of the major drivers of China's regional assertiveness. Policies that confer mutual benefit on the U.S. and the group of East Asian nations facing off as regional competitors should be priorities for the United States. This may help to weaken strategic interregional competition by increasing the shared incentives for stable, efficient market activity. 
enhancing stability in this neighborhood is directly in line with U.S. policy of rebalancing to Asia, will benefit our country, our allies, and all others who see their own stability tied to the future of this burgeoning region. Making China view the United States as an increasingly attractive economic partner is an important complement to our policy of sustaining our military strength in the Western Pacific. Finally, looking at Iran, uh, one of the most important security benefits of the unconventional energy revolution was its enabling of crippling oil sanctions against Iran, without which Iran would not have come to the negotiating table over their nuclear program. Uh, while the outlines of a potential final agreement between Iran and the P5 plus one are emerging, it is too early to assume success. U.S. policymakers need to enhance their ability to impose tough additional energy sanctions in the future. To, to pr prepare for the potential future imposition of sanctions, stimulating alternative oil supplies are going to be absolutely critical. If adversaries do not believe that the U.S. and its allies have the economic and political tolerance to cope with a self-imposed oil price increase, which could occur if more sanctions pull more oil off the market, those adversaries uh, may call our bluff. Furthermore, allies of the United States, many of whom have reluctantly gone along with energy sanctions in the past, may prove unwilling to participate in further energy sanctions unless the U.S. makes a serious effort to stimulate alternative oil supplies. Should the, oil, should the P5 plus one talks conclude successfully and oil sanctions on Iran are, are lifted, it is very much in the U.S. interest to minimize the benefit that this accrues to Iran. American producers want to compete with Iran. They should be allowed to do so. In conclusion, in a time when many questions about the role of the United States as a global energy player and a world leader uh, are, are being heard, Washington has a unique opportunity to strengthen domestic economic growth, energy market stability, U.S. global leadership, and open trade relations. Removing the outdated and detrimental limits on the export of U.S. natural gas and crude oil will advance these goals. It will deepen our trading ties with str strategic allies. It will improve the economic position and, and energy market stability of our nation and partners abroad. Our closest allies in Europe and Asia have asked for greater access to U.S. oil and gas. Policymakers should embrace these benefits for our allies and ourselves and liberalize our energy export rules. Thank, Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Mr. Gordon. I appreciate your comments. And uh, Mr. Webster. Uh, Chairman Barrasso, Ranking Member Udall, and members of the committee, I appreciate you calling this hearing today uh, to talk about this important topic. And I appreciate the opportunity to testify before you on the immense changes in the energy market, how it has already impacted the United States, its allies and partners, and the importance of a liberal energy export policy and free markets to fully maximize its positive impact. I appear before you in my capacity as Senior Director for IHS, where I lead the company's short-term crude oil markets team. 
In that role, I travel regularly, meeting global exporters and importers, participating in policy discussions here in DC, as well as OPEC meetings. This provides me with a perspective on North America's changing role in energy and its global context. Today, I want to address how free trade has already changed the flow of oil and petroleum products and how allowing crude oil to join gasoline, diesel, natural gas, electricity, and coal as a fuel that can be readily exported and would benefit U.S. interests and consumers. One of the key policy changes needed to help support this shift is the liberalization of U.S. oil exports. Energy flows into and out of the United States have already provided partial benefits to the region and the world. In July 2010, the United States imported 1.1 million barrels a day from Nigeria, an OPEC member. Because of, a, because of U.S. supply, this has shrunk to nearly nothing, while at the same time we are now exporting to Nigeria a large share of its refined products, such as diesel and gasoline. This change in refined product flows to Nigeria reflects a broader change in U.S. flow patterns for all of the uh, refined product fuels. Ten years ago this month, the United States was importing on a net basis two million barrels per day of refined products. This is now reverse direction and the U.S. is now exporting more than two million barrels a day on a net basis uh, to countries around the world. The U.S. refiners are some of the most advanced in the world and with these low-cost inputs they have been able to further exert their global standing providing not just U.S. consumers with valuable fuels, but consumers around the world while improving our own position. The U.S. has a liberal trade policy for natural gas, coal, refined products, processed condensate. It also allows oil exports to other countries in certain very specific cases, allowing U.S. producers to seek out international markets for their product will allow them to receive global prices, keeping the laboratory of U.S. shale technology and production fully opening our, open for business, allowing it to support our allies around the world. It also supports job growth across many industries and in places far from the oil fields here in the United States. It will also help to lower the price of Brent oil, the benchmark price for global oil, much as the increase in production already has. Lowering the Brent price is the access point to lower gasoline prices, as U.S. gasoline prices are linked to the Brent price and not to the WTI price that we have here uh, in the United States. This ban hurts American consumers, causes an unnecessary drag on American productivity, and does not let the United States uh, exploit fully the national security benefits from our energy resurgence. The reasons are intertwined with the nature of the American refinery system and the price discounts that American producers at times have had to take in order to sell their products competitively to refineries particularly along the Gulf Coast, which holds over half of the nation's total refining capacity. Over $85 billion has already been spent in the past quarter century to reconfigure these, these refineries to process heavy oil imported from countries such as Venezuela, while also making them available to take the heavy oil from Canada. Uh, the United States contains this lar the largest refining capacity of any country in the world, with 140 operating refineries with a combined crude oil distillation capacity of about 18 million barrels a day. Uh, this system is characterized not only by the number and size of refineries, but also by the number of world-class, high-complexity, full-conversion refineries with a substantial degree of petrochemical and specialty products. 
In this complex refining system, if the crude quality varies enough, the refineries cannot run optimally uh, with their designated operating parameters. In the Gulf region, most refineries are configured, as I said, to process this heavy crude oil. Unfinished products are the result of this crude mismatch, which then have a lower value because they require further processing to be further upgraded into the fuels that consumers like. In many cases, this, this mismatch is large enough that a refinery will have to reduce the crude oil throughput to process additional volumes. As a result, there are limits to how, many volume, how much volume can be processed in these refineries. To fully use this amount, it often requires a price discount limiting uh, the full impact for U.S. producers. Uh, I look forward to your questions and appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Mr. Webster. Uh, Commander Lippold. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Udall, my name is Commander Kirk Lippold, and I greatly appreciate the opportunity to testify before the subcommittee, especially in the perspective of national security. In my 26-year career in the Navy, I was a surface warfare officer serving on five different ships including guided missiles, guided missile cruisers and destroyers that protect U.S. national security interests across the globe. Foremost among those missions was to safeguard the sea lanes of communications, or SLOCs, that facilitate the global economy, including oil imports to the United States. I have experienced firsthand, particularly during my command of the USS Cole when it was attacked by Al-Qaeda terrorists during a routine refueling stop, the devastating effects of reliance on imported oil when our forward-deployed assets are placed in harm's way. The U.S. Navy has a unique role in the world in cooperation with our allies to ensure the safe conduct of trade, including oil. Since the 1970s, we have had policies in place to encourage energy independence that include investment in energy research and efficiency, diversity of fuel inputs, and the strict regulation of oil exports. Before we drastically alter these long-standing and successful policies, we should proceed with great caution to evaluate the real-world consequences. Despite the recent impressive boom in domestic crude oil production, the fact is the U.S. remains overly dependent on oil imports. In fact, the volume of oil that the U.S. imports is not altogether different from the import levels at the time the Energy Policy and Conservation Act was enacted in the 1970s. While increased domestic production has reduced the total amount of oil that the U.S. imports from abroad to meet its domestic needs, we still import a staggering amount of oil. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, imports in 2014 totaled more than 2.6 billion barrels, or around 30% of supply. By all accounts, domestic consumption will continue to outpace domestic production for the foreseeable future. As numerous national security experts and the U.S. presidents have observed over the course of decades, there are significant national security benefits to decreasing our reliance on imported oil supplies. Decreasing that reliance on unfriendly or dangerous regimes has the effect of removing a significant obstacle to achieving our foreign policy and national security objectives. At its most basic, relative energy independence leaves the U.S. and its leaders with more workable options when dealing with other countries. The original purpose of export regulations was to bolster national security by furthering energy independence. That purpose still holds true. Lifting export regulations may have the unintended consequence of undermining our national security goal of energy independence. 
precipitously lifting the regulation of exports would not confer equal strategic benefits. Advocates of lifting the export ban frequently point to Russia's aggressive invasion in Ukraine as a ready opportunity for the use of energy diplomacy. That notion makes little sense. As an initial matter, all credible economic studies on the subject project that the vast majority of U.S. crude oil exports purchased on world oil markets would make their way to Asia, not Europe. Indeed, the number one beneficiary of lifting the ban is likely to be China, a nation whose recent activities in the Pacific and South China Sea reflect more the actions of a rival hegemon for security dominance in the Trans-Pacific region than a responsible international partner. The U.S. does not need to export crude oil to influence international markets. Other countries are better off because the U.S. is producing more of its own supply. With strict export regulations in place, the U.S. gets the dual national security benefits of ample supply and leverage on the international stage. Attempting to alter the market forces that influence the distribution of power across the world stage is always risky business, so it is important to consider the potential downside risks to any dramatic realignment. We must also consider the second-order effects such a change would have on U.S. allies whose economies rely on crude oil production to survive, such as Nigeria or Azerbaijan. Nigeria produces nearly the same type of crude oil as the U.S., and therefore is a country most likely to suffer if significant U.S. crude oil exports materialize. Nigeria's economy is, to put it mildly, extremely dependent on oil. As I'm sure every senator on the subcommittee is aware, the terrorist group Boko Haram retains control over large parts of the country and threatens to turn Nigeria into a failed state. If the Nigerian economy falls into a tailspin, the consequences for international security would be dire. The safety of American civilians and military personnel across North Africa would be placed at risk. Military assets mobilize on petroleum products like gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. They do not run on crude. So a change in export policy that would undermine our robust refining base directly constrains the operational flexibility we have in rapid mobilization necessary for modern force projection. While tenting from the perspective of gaining a commercial foothold in a new market arena at this time, the national security implications of changing the existing policy regulating the export of crude oil is rife with unknown and probably unintended consequences that must be fully considered and addressed. Too many times in my career, I have experienced the stark reality of not thinking through the impact of changes in international and domestic policy. Today, we are in the midst of impressive new domestic production and discovery of untapped reserves. However, we continue to import virtually the same volume as foreign oil as when regulations passed into law. The day may come when the U.S. is no longer overly dependent on oil imports, and then we may be in a position to change our export policy. But for the sake of our national security, that day is not today. Thank you so much for your uh Testimony, uh, we will uh, start with uh, seven-minute rounds of questions, go back and forth if, uh, uh, if it's uh, agreeable to the members of the committee, and uh, I'll start. Mr. McNally, uh, in terms of lifting sanctions on Iran's oil exports, Iran receives a tremendous amount of its revenue from oil exports. Over the years, Congress put in place sanctions on Iran's energy sector. The administration is currently working toward a deal on Iran's nuclear weapon program, which will likely remove sanctions for, uh, on Iran oil 
exports, and The Economist had it at up to 800,000 barrels a day. Uh, in 2014, the largest purchasers of Iranian crude oil and, con and condensate were China, India, Japan, uh, South Korea, Turkey. Uh, the United States currently has a de facto ban on U.S. exports of crude oil to these same markets. Uh, do you believe the United States should allow Iran to increase exports of oil while prohibiting the United States companies and producers from accessing these same markets? <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, uh, until and unless there is a good nuclear deal with Iran, uh, my view has been, and I actually uh, wrote uh, an op-ed uh, in 2006 calling for quarantining Iranians' oil exports. I don't think we should allow Iran to sell any crude at all. Uh, but as you mentioned, under the current sanctions regime, and there are two parts, one is the United States, which has required Iran's importers to significantly reduce their oil imports. And now under the interim deal, the remaining six importers are supposed to hold steady even though we have seen a steady creep up in the Iran amount of Iran, Iran's oil exports to 1.4 million barrels a day, I believe, according to the IEA in its most recent report. Also importantly, Iran is exploiting a loophole in the U.S. sanctions regime through which it exports condensates, which is a light form of crude oil. And it is doing quite well, quite a brisk business with condensates. As my colleague mentioned, while some condensates in the United States are allowed to be exported, exported, those required permitting and so forth, and some are not. So we restrict our own condensates. The major restraint on Iran's oil exports, however, is the EU oil embargo. That caused Iran's oil exports to drop to by about five to 600,000 barrels a day, which is what Iran used to send uh, to Europe. My understanding is if there is a deal, U.S. sanctions would lift quite quickly. So the existing six, including China, South Korea, and Japan, could buy a more Iranian crude oil but that the Europeans will take several months, many months perhaps, before they lift the oil embargo. But over time, Iran will be allowed back. It is, I, I was uh, at international meetings with Iranian officials who made very clear they're coming back hard onto the market. They're gonna recapture their oil uh, market share that they have lost. Meanwhile, as I mentioned in my testimony, U.S. exporters will remain shackled. So why is it also important then that U.S. national security in our national security interest to allow our allies and partners to purchase American oil to diversify away from Iran? Well, it's important for several reasons. Um, one, it's, uh, it's important because if this deal, if we strike a deal and it fails, or if Iran cheats, we are gonna go back and ask the Europeans to continue to extend their embargo, and they're not enjoying it. A lot of Mediterranean, weaker Mediterranean European countries imported a lot of Iranian oil, and they wanna get back into that market, and they're, they're, they're refraining. We'll ask them to continue that. We'll also go back to our friends, especially South Korea and Japan, which have significantly reduced their imports from Iran, and ask them to reduce even more. I believe the Senate was looking at legislation in the spring that would close the condensate loophole as well. So in a snapback of sanctions or a tightening of sanctions scenario, we would be asking more of the Iran's uh, importers, and I think it would only be fair and reasonable, and we ought to expect to be asked to make our oil available to them in return. Okay, Mr. Gordon, in, in your testimony, uh, you, you talked about when our closest allies are stronger, the United States is more secure, better able to bolster and lead multilateral security initiatives. Uh, in what ways has the dependence of our allies on Russian energy resources impacted the ability of the United States to bolster and lead multilateral security initiatives? Well, I think that, that, that uh, European dependence on 
Russian gas sources uh, ha has been a, a source, a major source of the, of the failure of Europe to come up with a coordinated gas strategy that, that the United States has been urging on, on the Europeans for a very long time. And again, here I think that, that uh, while I agree with uh, Commander Lippold that, that there's not a short-term solution to the Ukraine crisis from U.S. gas, that, that I think adding, adding U.S. gas exports uh, to the, the broader mix from which European allies can choose uh, gives them a lot more flexibility vis-a-vis -vis Russia. It's already actually leading to a strengthening uh, of, of those forces in, in Europe who, who want to have a more coordinated policy. And I think a, a uh, loosening up of uh, our, our restrictions would definitively help support the continuation of sanctions by the Europeans on Russia, which is frankly at risk. Yeah, I mean, that was my concern as well. I was in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine on Friday. On Saturday, I was with uh, the president as well as in the prime minister on Saturday and the, and the mayor of Kyiv. Uh, it's exactly what I'm hearing hearing from them, and it, I think it would allow others, as you say, willing to participate in additional energy sanctions against countries like Iran and Russia if uh, the U.S. were able to, uh, to lift that. Mr. Gordon, also in terms of uh, Asia, in, in your testimony, you said energy insecurity uh, is one of the major drivers of China's regional assertiveness. Uh, he went on to note policies that confer uh, mutual benefit on the United States and the group of Eastern Asian nations facing off as regional competitors should be priorities for the United States, uh, that they may help to deter strategic intra-regional competition, you say, by increasing the shared incentives uh, for stable, efficient uh, market activity. How could U.S. energy exports uh, help our East Asian allies and promote stability in that region? Well, uh, the, the, the lead demand of our East Asian allies on on the economic and security arenas have to do with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, w which I'm optimistic is going to, to move forward, and to uh, for the U.S. to unshackle the export of energy across the Pacific. Uh, I think our, our, our Asian allies see two benefits to this. One is they see a direct benefit in, in their own energy security uh, from a stable source of supply that, that makes them less dependent on the Middle East. Uh, but secondly, I think they're, they're, they're all interested in anything that boosts the overall resilience of the global energy markets that may lead over time to China becoming less assertive in, in buying up oil and in, in, their, in their efforts to create maritime facts on the ground in the South China Sea. A China that is increasingly dependent upon U.S. energy exports is more likely to think twice about its assertive stance. Again, this is not something that changes quickly, but over time, I think it's a very important complement to our strategy of military strength in the Western Pacific. Uh, thank you very much. Senator Udall. Thank you, Chairman Barrasso. Mr. Webster and anybody else on the panel who'd like to answer this question, um, my understanding is that the Congressional Research Service in 2013 concluded, and I quote, if all the proposed U.S. LNG export 
export projects were operational today, the United States would rank first in the world for global export capacity. And that's the end of their quote there. Do you agree with this conclusion and what would this mean for industry states such as New Mexico where companies are waiting for the right demand signals to begin accessing reserves of natural gas? Uh, thank you for your question, uh, Ranking Member. I, I would agree with the statement from the Congressional Research Service that if everything that was on the table in 2013 was now operational today that we would easily eclipse uh, Qatar and, and anybody else that happened to, to try. The one caveat to that is, of course, there is, a, is a, a real difference between those that put in an application and those that are able to actually get through the process. But even if you limit it to that smaller scope, it is still a, a substantial amount that would rival uh, Qatar. In terms of uh, the state of New Mexico and getting the sort of signals that those producers would want, which is essentially a, a higher price, as we've been dealing with very, very low prices that for many producers just don't make sense. It's actually a, a, a so assortment of not just exports, but also increased uh, use from power, power demand, uh, from petrochemical uh, projects, uh, and a number of different uh, solutions that will just help this country both uses, use its own natural gas more effectively, but also export it more uh, to uh, our allies. And any of the other panelists want to jump in on that? Okay. Um, Mr. Webster, if the United States continues its ban on exports of crude oil, what are the ramifications economically in states that are now extracting light, tight oil, and what, why should we be worried about oversupply in the short term? Uh, that's a uh, uh, interesting question in that uh, if you don't allow the export of crude oil, the economic implications actually extend well beyond just those states that are extracting uh, crude oil. We did a, uh, IHS conducted a study that went state by state and congressional district by congressional district. Uh, and you can see that, you know, the change in a crude export stance has huge ramifications across the United States, even for states that don't necessarily allow uh, the use of, uh, uh, of fracking. So I think uh, that right now is, is a significant hamper on some additional jobs. If you allowed crude oil exports, you'd see an addition of about 400,000 jobs a year. Two to 3,000 of those jobs would be in, in your own state. Um, uh, the second part of that in terms of the oversupply, the oversupply is where you're talking about it from just the United States standpoint, where they're not able to get their crude oil out, and you start to have the sort of discounts that we've seen uh, in, in the last couple of years at various points. When that happens, that ends up creating a policy discount for these producers, and they're just not able to produce as much because uh, they are, they're not able to make the sort of investments they would have been able to make otherwise. Okay, Commander uh, Lippold, you've been at the tip of the spear of the complex uh, global energy system. Based on your experience, do you believe that U.S. troops are at risk, <coughs> excuse me, of increased harm as a result of increased U.S. dependence on foreign crude? If Congress were to remove the export ban, in which regions could we see increased risk as a res um, risk to our forces as a result? Thank you, Senator. Uh, yes, those forces are going to be at greater risk. I believe that if you look at today, we are still dependent at 7 million barrels a day being imported into our nation. That is a huge amount, almost 30%. And if you continue to be dependent, getting into a position where you're now trying to export it when we haven't even created an overarching national security policy that deals with 
energy production across the board, not just crude, but in other ways, in fact, could adversely affect it. Because while the Navy goes out and does, in fact, protect the sea lanes of communication as a matter of making sure that the economies of the world can operate freely on the high seas, it is when you start affecting the oil supply through world choke points that you really are putting the troops at a higher risk and into areas, especially looking and you look at the Strait of Hormuz, the Strait of Malacca. China is obviously going to be affecting things in the South China Sea. So as those supplies tighten, they would be done. However, you have to look at it from the perspective U.S. national security interests have to come first. And until we develop that overarching energy policy and we get much less dependence than we have today, the ban really does need to stay in place. Lippold and, and others on the panel, because there is no ban on the export of refined oil products, some believe that refiners will eventually reinvest in their facilities so they can make use of more domestic crude. What would the economic and security impacts be if the U.S. were to continue with the current status quo where crude, crude exports are banned but refined products are not? Well, Senator, I think that the fact that we can take refined product today and use that to bolster our allies, first and foremost, if you look at Europe, the fact that the militaries of the world and economies run on refined product. They don't run on crude. And when you look at all the different types of crude that are produced by various nations around the world, each of their refining capacities or refining uh, capabilities have to be adjusted to adapt to the different types. So you're asking for some countries that may have been working with one type, say medium sour, now having to shift to that light sweet that we produce, the uh, light tight oil then it makes a, a drastic difference. And so I think that in the, at the end of the day, the fact that we are able to have a capacity and capability to get an export refined products to respond much quicker than we could with crude to bolster our allies in Europe or in the Pacific Rim is far more of a greater leverage for us from a national security perspective than it is to be able to lift an export crude ban. Yeah, please, Mr. McNally. Mr. Senator, uh, it, to answer your question, if we leave the crude oil ban in place, what every study has shown is that eventually, as my colleague Mr. Webster said, the amount of oil that we're now newly producing, this light, tight oil, is going to overwhelm the capacity of our existing refineries to process it. We built our refineries, if you will, to process coffee grounds, really heavy, gunky oil from Mexico and Canada. And by the way, half of our oil imports come from our neighbors and friends, Mexico and Canada. The surprise was the kind of oil we found is sort of like champagne. Uh, and our refineries are built to run coffee grounds. And so if we keep on producing champagne, eventually those coffee ground refineries, they may decide to invest in new equipment, but to do so, they're going to require a discount. They're going to drive a low price from those producers. And that's where the risk to our boom comes. It's bad enough that we live at the whims of OPEC and global supply demand that sends the price of oil to 100, from $110 to $42 in six months. That's, that's bad enough. But when on top of that, our producers have to face an eventual discount from the coffee ground refineries who are going to drive prices down further, it risks killing the goose that is laying the golden eggs. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Udall. Senator Gardner. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you to the witnesses for uh, testifying today. Commander, thank you for your service. Um, last year, I carried H.R. Uh, 6 in the House of Representatives. Uh, it was our bill to expedite the permit uh, approval process for LNG exports. We had a variety of witnesses testify before the committee, just like we have this year. Uh, to a person, they have talked about how important it is, uh, people supporting this effort, uh, to allow the United States to move forward on exports like LNG and what it meant for their national security. Uh, Counter-arguments were made saying, hey, look, uh, there wouldn't be a single molecule that you could actually ship here, so it wouldn't really do anything. Uh, the response of the people in that country, indeed, were, yes, it would. It would immediately give us more leverage and more negotiating power, and it would send a signal to the world that the United States is serious about providing and equipping its allies with energy security. And uh, as my work on the East Asia subcommittee has shown, every meeting that I go into that starts with an ambassador from uh, Singapore or beyond talk about the importance of U.S. energy security and our ability to export energy and what it would mean to their security. Uh, we're talking and right now about the Trade Promotion Authority. We're talking about TPP. We're talking about trade issues. We talk about it from an economic standpoint. We talk about it from a, a security standpoint. Uh, and if you look at this energy debate, every single one of them understands that as the United States economy has, has improved because of this incredible revolution in energy production that we have, that we have gone through, uh, they realize that that same benefit could extend to them through energy security. And no longer would they have to be beholden only to one provider or, or a, a pipeline that could be shut off in the middle of winter uh, if the United States was serious about its providing and extending its security umbrella uh, through energy uh, development to our allies across uh, around the globe. One of the interesting dynamics, of course, of the House vote last year, and again, this is on the LNG side, were people who represented states that had enacted moratoriums on hydraulic fracturing. Uh, perhaps the, these states had outright banned hydraulic fracturing. But they acknowledged that the only reason we're in a position to be able to export an abundance of energy is because of hydraulic fracturing, coupled with new technologies like horizontal drilling. Uh, and there were many people who represent those states that had moratoriums in place that actually supported the... LNG, expedited LNG permitting bill because they recognized the security that it could provide to our allies. And so while their state has banned or imposed more terms on hydraulic fracturing, they understand that the only reason we have enough to export is because of hydraulic fracturing. And they understand that because of that increase in supply, it actually provides additional security to our allies. And so I think this argument over, over uh, exporting really does need to finally be more than just talking and actually have actions put in place by Congress and this administration to allow it to move forward and, and to happen. Um, in, in the commander's testimony, he stated this, and I wanted to follow up because I think, Mr. McNally, you were talking about this. It said, uh, it is axiomatic that military assets mobilize on petroleum products like gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. They do not run on crude. Mr. McNally, we're not exporting crude, correct? That's what this debate is about. Uh, do we export gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel, or could we? Uh, Senator Gardner, we certainly do. As my colleague pointed out, we used to be a net 10 years or so ago ex-importer of refined product, gasoline, distillate, liquefied petroleum gas, etc. Now we are a net exporter. We send China liquefied petroleum gas. So it's a free and open market in the export of refined product. It's just 
crude oil that is restricted. Mr. Webster, a question for you on uh, impact of continued development. And if we have an excess supply in this country, what happens to production in this country? Uh, thank you for your question, Senator. If we have an excess of production, meaning that the price is, is going down, one, the first thing that you see is you see it start filling up in stocks and you start seeing significant discounts at refineries, which you've seen at, at various points in the past. And then the second order of effects is the sort of things we've already started to see. Companies start laying down rigs. They start laying off workers. They start slowing that production down. And because of the extreme decline rates, which is the, the, the lower production you get out of a well after a period of time, you actually start seeing a slowdown in U.S. production. And so, uh, you know, to echo uh, Mr. McNally's statement, you start to kill off uh, the goose that laid the golden egg. There's no question that globally we are in a lower price environment, uh, and a policy change isn't going to change that, but a policy change can impact that policy discount that we've seen at various points to at least provide U.S. producers the opportunity to compete on a global level. And, and what happens then with a, with a slowdown in production economically? Uh, so economically with a slowdown in production, you end up having a reduction in uh, GDP within the United States. You end up having reduction in revenues to state, federal, and local governments. Uh, and you end up having to eventually start to, again, start importing oil again and, and reducing our energy. Security. And what happens to the price with the decrease in production? Uh, and the, with the decrease in production, longer term, we end up going back to the sort of prices that you saw in 2008, $147. And what would the economic impact of 400,000 new jobs a year be that you mentioned in one of your responses to a question? Sure. Uh, so what that ends up uh, doing is you end up having, uh, let me just get the figure real quickly here. Uh, about $86 billion in additional GDP between now and the next uh, next couple of decades. So it's it's quite significant. Uh, thank you. And um, I, I will uh, yield back my time to the chairman. But I do just want to say again, I think there are people who uh, throughout uh, this, this chamber in the Senate and the House who recognize the importance of moving forward on our export potential and that this presents our allies with one of the most uh, innovative ways of, of helping themselves provide security for their people, their country, simply through the incredible production of the American worker. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Gardner. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, very much. Um, I have long warned this committee about the consequences for American consumers and our economy of large-scale exports of American natural gas. The Department of Energy, our Department of Energy, has said that exporting less than half of the volumes of LNG already approved could increase U.S. prices for American consumers by up to 54 percent. That could translate into a de facto energy tax on American consumers, businesses, and our economy of up to 62 billion dollars a year, a regressive energy tax on American consumers if we export LNG in the amounts that are only half of the level already approved. And we can't even be sure that the experts, exports are going to go to the Ukraine because we believe in capitalism. We're not a state-run oil industry. We can't control where this oil or natural gas is going to go. Uh, we are a, a system that allows the Rex Tillerson to have his hand on the tiller at ExxonMobil to direct 
where oil and natural gas goes, and that's towards the highest price. Now, right now, and I'm just going to focus on oil, consumers are saving at the pump because U.S. oil prices are lower than the international benchmark price. A recent Barclays report found that U.S. consumers saved $11 billion at the pump last year because of lower U.S. oil prices and will potentially save up to $10 billion this year. We change policies, energy tax on ordinary Americans, which from my perspective, is regressive and it's wrong. We are having a refining and shipbuilding boom in our country because of the increased production coupled with the export ban. There are more than 800,000 barrels per day of refining capacity additions or upgrades that are in the works in the United States, according to industry analysts. Many of those refinery upgrades involve investments of $300 million or more. The private sector in the United States refining sector is responding to this crude oil. They are building and expanding the refining capacity with American jobs here, right now. And that's why the United States Steelworkers and the AFL-CIO are opposed to lifting the oil ban because we otherwise will not create those jobs. Now, U.S. shipbuilders have orders to expand our domestic tanker fleet capable of transporting crude oil by nearly 40 percent. Each tanker can represent an investment of 100 to 200 million dollars. Five years ago, there were zero orders for new domestic oil tankers. One company, Acre ASA in Pennsylvania, right now has nearly a $1 billion four-year order backlog and has tripled employment over the last three years. American companies responding here by creating new jobs in already existing industries that otherwise were going away under this export policy. Shipbuilding, refining, gone overseas. That's this plan. That's the heart of it. When we still import nearly 5 million barrels of oil every day, that would harm our national security. We are neck and neck with China as the world's largest export importer. The Department of Energy forecasts that we will continue to import millions of oil, barrels of oil a day for the foreseeable future. When we are still importing 5 million barrels of oil a day, every barrel that we would send to one of our allies means an additional barrel that we are going to have to import from a potentially unstable region of hostile countries. And mind you, we're still exporting young men and women in uniform over to the Middle East to protect those ships bringing in oil from unstable parts of the country. How can we export our oil when we're still importing 5 million barrels a day? That is just wrong. And it's wrong, especially to those young men and women in uniform. We should be creating energy independence here in the United States of America. Oil and natural gas are not like any other commodity. They're not like widgets. They're not like iPhones. This is the central com uh, commodity. You look at ISIS. You look at, uh, you look at uh, um, the Shiites, the Sunnis. Where are they going? For the oil-producing regions, whether it be Yemen, whether it be Iraq, whether it be Syria, they're going for the oil. 
They're not going for the widgets. They're not going for the iPhones. Oil, gas, national security. That's what it's all about. It's not like any other product. It is the heart and soul of our national security. So let me ask you this, Commander Lippold. We don't have state-owned oil companies in the United States. We cannot direct ExxonMobil to send oil exports to specific countries. They will be making decisions about where any crude oil exports would go based on the market and what's best for the bottom line, not on what might be best for U.S. foreign policy. Is that not correct? That is correct. If we start to export oil, we have no control on where it will go, and it is not a free market that is out there. When you look at the vast majority of oil controlled by either national oil companies or cartels like OPEC, we aren't entering into a free market system by any stretch. Commander Lippold, according to the Department of Energy, lifting the crude export ban would reduce the investment in the U.S. refining sector by nearly $9 billion over the next decade and could mean 1.6 million barrels a day less of domestic refining capacity in our own country. Refineries on the East Coast and other parts of our country could potentially close. Isn't that a national security concern if we don't have sufficient domestic refining capacity and are reliant on foreign nations to provide us with critical fuels like gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel? Yes, Senator, it is. Uh, let me ask you this. According to uh, uh, Mr. Webster at IHS, the number one destination for export of U.S. light, sweet crude oil would be China. Is that correct, that the bulk of the U.S. exports would likely go to China and Asia, Mr. Webster? Uh, thank you for your question, Senator. Yes, actually, you would see a, a great deal of uh, volumes go to China, as well as some of the technology that would be there as well. And I would also agree with you that you, if you don't change the export ban, you absolutely will continue to have significant uh, refinery investments of about $3 billion. However, on the production side, you're missing out on around $756 billion in investments. So even as we're trying to pass a free trade bill so that we set the rules, not China, we dictate, not China, we're simultaneously talking about exporting the most precious of all raw products, and it will go to China because they will be the high bidder, sending back finished product for us to purchase in the United States of America. So I guess what I would say is let's build the ships here, let's build the refining capacity here, let us drill here. Uh, let us have consumers in America get the benefits here. Let us have the petrochemical industry here get the benefits. Let us have an economy that is robust using this incredible bonanza of energy that we now have and lowering our unemployment rate and showing what the real might of our country is. That is what I would do rather than exporting this oil and gas so that China and other countries then take our most precious resource and undermine our ability to be able to protect our own citizens. That stops in its tracks if we lift this export ban. I thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all very much for being here today. I'm sorry I missed your testimony because I was at another um, commitment. But I returned last weekend, a week ago, from a conference in Poland that was focused on Eastern Europe and 
One of the major issues there was um, Russia and Putin's aggression in Eastern Europe and Ukraine and what could be done to address that. And obviously one of the big concerns that I heard from the countries whose representatives I met with from Eastern Europe was concern about their dependence on Russian energy and what could be done to address that. Now, one of the people I met with was an official from Ukraine who talked about one of the efforts that they're looking at is how to reduce their dependence on that Russian energy through energy efficiency. Um, and I know that our, your testimony is focused on exports of oil and gas, but is there not also a role for export of our technology around efficiencies that we ought to be looking at as we're thinking about what opportunities we have to influence um, the global market around energy? Anybody? Uh, thank you, Senator Shaheen. I, I think absolutely that, that export of energy-saving technologies has to be an important piece of, of what we're doing. We don't have restrictions on that. So the, the, the issue here is that, that we, we, have, we have a set of restrictions on the very things that our most important allies are calling for us to lift, both in Asia, in Europe, especially in Eastern Europe. So I think the, the, the theme that, that we're focusing in on here is the is the national security implications of beginning to loosen that up uh, and, and to do so in a way that, that can, can both secure our economy at home while responding to these challenges abroad. And, and I appreciate that. I'm suggesting, though, that maybe our, we're thinking too narrowly about how we're thinking about this issue, and that we ought to be thinking broader about what other um, exports of energy, energy technologies that we can provide that is part of a comprehensive national security energy policy that will help us address the energy challenges that we're facing around the world, and that efficiency technologies ought to be a piece of that. Um, so let me, let me go from that to asking you, Commander Lippold. Um, you testified that a day may come when the United States should alter our export policy, but today is not that day. So what conditions do you think would have to be met for us to proceed with changing our export policy around oil? First, I would think that we would need a significant reduction in the amount of oil that the United States is currently importing to make our economy run. And the second thing would be development of an overarching strategy, which you suggested, to say we need a comprehensive energy policy that is folded in and a component of our entire national security strategy and foreign policy. Because until then, we're just going to be nitpicking and solving little symptoms right here when we're not getting to the crux of the problem, which is developing that national security strategy of which energy independence is a component and how we are going to achieve that and what we are going to work with. I, I have not advocated that the ban should remain in place forever, 
but I've said now's not the time. When you're at 30%, you don't want to be in a position where you're saying, congratulations, you have completed eight of your 12-step program. Let's go celebrate with our friends and have a round. Now is not the time because of our dependence that we currently have, and I think that we need to develop that overarching strategy, reduce dependence, and take a look at that ban in, in the context of a larger discussion. And so are there, are there positions between totally ending the export ban and um, staying where we are that we should be looking at that might be reasonable, should we be thinking about a phased approach to addressing this that goes on over a period of time and when we reach certain um, goals in terms of our um, reducing our dependence on imports that we can then look at opening the market a certain amount and thinking about it in those terms, is that, is that a reasonable place to be thinking about this so that we're not talking about either opening ending the ban tomorrow or leaving it in place for the next 10 years, but we're looking at some, some phased approach that might make sense. Uh, th I, yeah, I, thank you, you Senator. That's anybody a, else. That's a great question and really does go to the core because we can't answer that question right now without this overarching strategy for the United States to be able to approach how we are going to work toward energy independence while we are going at it piecemeal until we have that strategy in place, we really can't set the benchmarks and say, well, when we're down to 10%, we can open it up and export X number, or when we get to 5%, we can export X number. I think we need to look at it, and it may end up being on a sliding scale. It may be that when we hit a certain amount, we can say, we have reached a point combined with other resources that we are exporting, like LNG, that we have, in fact, have influence to where it is affecting foreign policy and our national security objectives are being done. Plus, we have to see what the state of the world is. We're not an independent actor. It is also going to depend on the security conditions for our allies, not only in Europe, but in the Pacific Room, and quite fundamentally, in the Middle East. Mr. McNally. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Um, I would start by observing that just the great majority, if not totality, of bipartisan energy and foreign policy experts regard the crude oil ban as at best an anachronism and at worst a direct threat to our oil boom and a problem in our foreign policy. If it serves some public purpose, then we might want to debate balancing that public purpose against the, the benefit of lifting it. But it serves no public purpose. It just threatens the goose. So in an ideal world, I would think, respectfully, we would just get rid of it right away. However, in a less than ideal world, uh, perhaps we would look at uh, options such as allowing uh, treaty allies or free trade agreement countries or countries that continue to respect sanctions against Iran to, uh, to have access to our oil. Uh, that perhaps would be a half a loaf approach. But fundamentally, since there is no public justification for the ban, there really is no reason not to just strike it entirely. Other views? Mr. Webster, Mr. Gordon. Yeah, um, I would I would agree with uh, uh, with Mr. McNally. I mean, it's uh, and I am as a markets guy, I would be very hesitant, you know, putting in if if we hit this, then you'll allow this. Realize that this is a market thing. So if you had allowed crude exports in 1981, as you allowed pro petroleum product exports, you would have not seen any real crude exports in significant volumes until late 2013. 
And today, you probably wouldn't see many volumes as well, but probably later this year, you would see volumes. It's, it, part of it is, a, is over time, you will see it as a seasonal thing, and then over time, as the U.S. production continues to grow, because it is given this full global price, then you'll start seeing more and more volumes. But if the price doesn't make sense in terms of an arbitrage, those volumes aren't going to go there. So the market itself will kind of solve that issue that you're looking at. Senator Shaheen, I think that, that, that the, the way to address this is to, to address what, what, are, what are the pressing national security concerns here and who do you put in the category? And, and again, here I think that, that the, the trio really is treaty allies, it is participants in, in FTAs, and then it also has to do with using this as a, a, a tool to encourage the retention of the capability to sustain sanctions on Iran or to put them back into place. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My time uh, is th up. Th thank you very much, Senator Shane. I mean, it's interesting, you said you were in uh, Poland, um, over the uh, recent recess, I was in uh, Slovakia. I'm sorry, I was in Slovakia over the weekend, but over the last recess, Estonia, Romania, uh, the Czech Republic. And what, what I'm hearing in terms of the use of the technology is that Vladimir Putin is supporting funding uh, green groups, extreme green groups, to then get politically involved in the home countries to prevent the use of this technology, not because of a change in his position on the use of fossil fuels, but as an effort to keep them from not producing their own and taking in and making them continue to be dependent uh, upon Russian energy. So it's, I mean, it's a very interesting uh, interplay of the way that Putin plays this, uh, this game. Mr. McNally, the, the, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, on May 20th, uh, Leon Panetta, Stephen Hadley, the oil export ban harms national security. I think you've, you've seen the, the states that the, the moment has come for the U.S. to deploy its oil and gas in support of its security interest around the world. They say, too often foreign policy debates in America focus on issues such as how much military power should be deployed in the Middle East, whether the U.S. should provide arms to the Ukrainians, or what tough economic sanctions should be imposed on Iran. The article concludes, ignored it as a powerful non-lethal tool. America's abundance of oil and natural gas the U.S. remains the great arsenal of democracy. It should be the great arsenal of energy. So I'm going to have this article put in the record. The, um, less than a month ago, William Cohen, former Secretary of Defense, wrote an article in Time magazine titled, Why President Obama Should Export Crude Oil. He talks about the strategic benefits of lifting the ban. And I'm going to have that article also submitted uh, to, to the record. Mr. Reno, you served as a senior director of international energy on the National Security Council for President George W. Bush's administration. You have extensive experience evaluating the national security, foreign policy matters facing our nation. Do you agree with these former defense secretaries, Panetta and Cohen, about the benefits of crude oil exports and U.S. security? Thank you, Chairman Barrasso. I certainly do. And again, as I said in my prepared testimony, it harkens back to a time in our country when there was confidence and bipartisan support in our energy position globally. And again, when we were an arsenal of energy. 
uh, when we did uh, step up and backstop our allies with energy supplies. Now, in today's world, we're not as powerful and big in the oil markets as we, as we used to be. But as we have discussed this afternoon, it doesn't take a lot of oil or gas to be exported to have real impacts. Matter of fact, you don't have to export any. Just the offering, the option of exports helps. So I certainly do agree that. I will say, Mr. Chairman, what I pleasantly discovered during my White House experience, my only prior government experience was in the Peace Corps, sir, so this is my first time, was how when it came to serious energy issues, there was bipartisanship. Democrats and Republicans, when it comes to the serious, hard energy policy questions, more often than not, saw things similarly. And there was this commonality that I think you see now with the crude oil export debate and that you have seen in the past in our country's history. Great. The, um, Mr. Mr. Gordon, let's see, you, you uh, authored a uh, crude oil export in U.S. national, national security. I, I think it's a very good piece. I'm going to ask that this also be put in the record. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you get to page 16, some of the things I've underlined, address public concerns. It says, acknowledge and address public concerns regarding perceived negative effects on gasoline prices uh, of exporting oil. I mean, it almost sounded from some of the questioning by some of the members yes. that, that they think that we burn crude when, in fact, we actually burn gasoline. And could you kind of help talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. so uh, I, I think that, that, that uh, the, the public, that, that we, we really need a public engagement process uh, because I think, I mean, while I don't agree with uh, Senator Markey's views, there's no question that, that his views represent how a lot of people think about this. And so it's an absolutely legitimate issue that, that he raises, and, and I think that's, that's the, the key for addressing this. Uh, and I, I mean, I think that, that the, to, to my mind, the unconventional energy revolution is one of the most significant contributors to uh, enhancing U.S. power and potential in the world that we have seen in recent decades. Uh, and that I think that, that the risk of killing that golden goose are, are very, very profound and, and it would it would really seriously undermine the United States. That means that we need to have a, a very big debate about the issues that Senator Markey raised uh, be, because the, the American public and indeed lots of members of, of Congress are worried that it really is a zero-sum game here. I, I will defer to Mr. Webster and Mr. McNally to talk about some of the arguments. I'm not an energy economist, I'm a, a foreign policy analyst, but, but I, I, I very much am of the view that the pathway for getting from here to there uh, lies through a public debate that addresses these very, very real and cr critical issues that Senator Markey was talking about. Well, no, I appreciate that, because as one of our colleagues, uh, not on this committee, but in, in the Senate, uh, said to me, he invited me to come to one of his town hall meetings. He said, I want you to stand up there and explain to the people in my hometown why exporting crude is actually going to help lower the cost of gasoline at the pump, because as you say, it's not. So I'm going to take you along with us if we go. Thank you. <laughs> if, if, uh, 
Mr. Webster, um, in terms of the OPEC decisions on, on crude oil, there, there's been a lot of speculation about the decision of, of OPEC to, to not cut oil production. Uh, some individuals believe that Saudi Arabia and other OPEC members are trying to put pressure on Iran and its nuclear ambitions. Other people feel that OPEC is trying to encourage Vladimir Putin to abandon his support for the Assad regime. I mean, you can read a lot out there. Uh, other folks say OPEC's trying to undermine America's crude oil production. G given our interest in deterring Iran and Russia, uh, do you believe it's a good time to lift the ban on exporting crude uh, from the United States? Uh, thank you, uh, Chairman. Yes, I, I, I was at the OPEC meeting both on November 27th and just uh, earlier in uh, uh, in June where they made that decision and continued that decision partly in fact because of what is going on with U.S. production recognizing that they were in a difficult spot to be able to to push against it. Uh, right now to me I, and I understand some of the concerns that, that people have that exporting crude oil is going to raise gasoline prices. It hasn't actually the the uh, right now this boom in U.S. production kept us from very very high prices before uh, 2014 because of all of the outages we had from Iran and other places and allowing continued uh, oil production to the maximum extent allowed under a global oil price uh, is only going to increase both US energy security but also global energy security. I'm, I'm often been quoted as saying that a you know a free barrel of oil anywhere increases energy security everywhere and being able to bring all of those barrels to the fore, uh, both to supply U.S. refiners and U.S. US consumers, but also global refiners as well, is, is the sort of move that we need to make now that is going to allow us to continue to push back uh, and, and continue to force OPEC to make these sorts of decisions and essentially become a, a free market uh, group. Thank you. And Mr. McNally, uh, in terms of uh, natural gas, February this year, President Obama's Council on Economic Advisors, they issued an economic report for the president, said an increase in U.S. exports and natural gas and the resulting price changes uh, would have a number of mostly, benefic mostly beneficial effects on natural gas producers, on employment, on U.S. geopolitical security, and the environment. Uh, the report explains that more U.S. natural gas exports would result in, a, as they say, an increase in GDP, ranging from... Uh, 0.05% to 0.17% in different export scenarios. It says that the U.S. natural gas exports of 6 billion cubic feet per day could support as many as 65,000 jobs. Uh, in addition, the report found that uh, more U.S. natural gas exports would have, quote, a positive geopolitical impact for the United States. Specifically, and this is, again, the President's uh, Council on Economic Advisors, specifically it explains that the U.S. natural gas exports, they say, builds liquidity in the global natural gas market, reduces European dependence on the current primary suppliers, Russia and Iran. And I see, Mr. Gordon, you're shaking your hand up and down in agreement as well. So do you agree with the economic report of the president that increasing U.S. exports and natural gas will result in increased GDP and create new jobs, have a positive geopolitical impact on the nation? Chairman Barrasso, I certainly do. And I think that report just repeats uh, many private sector studies that were done by Mr. Webster's organization and others, uh, and the Department of Energy, frankly, which when it considered its policy on export facilities, 
Had it believed Senator Markey's scenario of 54% price increases, I'm sure Secretary, the Secretary of Energy and President Obama would never have accelerated and streamlined the export approvals. The, that was, a ba that was a, uh, an extreme case. Uh, that was not the reference-based case. So I think it's been well understood in this country for several years. And again, as I said in the outset, to your credit and your colleagues' credit, that this gas boom in particular offers enormous economic and national security benefits. We saw that with Japan after the Fukushima disaster. That came clear to us during Russia's aggression last year. It is something that, is real, that has resulted in clear, tangible benefits in which the President, to his credit, and his advisors has, has acknowledged. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, and, and a final question, Mr. McNally. In case, I'm trying to decide if I want to take you along with me, with, with uh, Dr. Gordon here, when we go to this town hall meeting in a state that is not my own. Would you explain how expanding crude oil, uh, exporting crude oil, uh, would lower gasoline prices at home in the United States? Sure. Uh, I, would, I would be happy to join you, Senator, and that's a sincere promise. I would be happy to go and do that. And, uh, and I will admit it's, uh, it's somewhat counterintuitive uh, because we associate gasoline price increases uh, from the 1970s like a nightmare with the rise in oil imports back then. But the way it works in the oil market, it's a global pool. And we, our gasoline prices are set by the price of crude oil in the global pool. So what matters is how much oil is going into the pool and coming out of the pool. And as Mr. Webster said, the more oil, crude oil, we can add to the world, the lower will be the price of crude oil globally and therefore the price of gasoline here. We need the crude oil export ban or we need the option to export some types of our oil in order to sustain production to keep our production high and the global price low. So bottom line, get rid of the ban, which is not helping consumers right now. I want to be very clear, the Barclays study that Ch uh, Senator Markey mentioned has been uh, widely discredited. That was written by uh, uh, equity <coughs> analysts uh, cherry-picking data from 2000, 2008 and 2009. Uh, the truth is, and EIA and other government agencies have also found, as have private sector organizations, that the uh, the uh, gasoline prices in the United States are not set by WTI, the U.S. price. The discount that U.S. producers have been forced to accept is not helping consumers. It's only helping some refiners who are earning very even fatter margins than they are already. And so, net, net, sir, get rid of the ban. We'll have more supply. If we have more supply, the price will go down for everybody. Well, and, and finally, Mr. McNally, I understand that the Congressional Budget Office, the Government Accountability Office, and the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, as well as the Energy Infrastructure Administ Information uh, Administration, ha has made the same findings. Yes, sir. And if I may, in a spirit of bipartisanship, I think the most uh, passionate and articulate uh, encapsulation of this argument uh, was made by Mr. Summers, uh, the former Treasury Secretary, yeah. um, uh, uh, President Obama. And I think that um, he clearly said uh, that what we all know, really, uh, that Economics 101 works, sir. And if we add to global supply, we will have lower prices for everybody. It's just that simple. More supply, lower prices. Thank you, sir. Well, I want to thank each of you for being here today. The record will remain open for a period of time. There may be some submitted questions. I hope you get those answers back to us promptly. This was very informative. We had good bipartisan uh, participation, so thanks so much for your testimony. Meeting is adjourned.